0: Sermon text for this morning is uh, Ruth chapter 1. And uh, we already read the chapter uh, during our second reading, but I do want to encourage you to uh, open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1 as we begin this morning. And you know, when we turn to books in the Old Testament uh, like Ruth, uh, the natural question that might be on some of our minds is: you know, what does the story of a poor widow who lived 3,000 years ago have to do with me. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, he teaches us that the Old Testament scriptures, he says, were written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so, Paul teaches us here that the Old Testament was inspired by God and it was written down for later generations of believers, for you and for me, so that you and I, we can read the history of redemption and we can trace God's promise from Genesis to Revelation. We can be instructed by it, we can be built up by it, and we can be uh, taught by it. And so as we read Ruth, we can draw application to our own lives. We can draw application by noticing the pattern of of God's faithfulness and his goodness to his people throughout all the ages, throughout all the ages that his church has existed. And so it's not just a history lesson as we uh, read the book of Ruth, but the book of Ruth teaches us about God, See, this book teaches us about God's ways with his people, ways that are unchanging, teaches us about his faithfulness to us, and ultimately about his faithfulness in keeping his promise of sending his Son to redeem us from our sins. And so as we consider chapter 1 of Ruth this morning, what we see first in this chapter is that we must stay where God has promised life and hope. We must stay where God has promised life and hope. As we read in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, this phrase here in the book of Ruth, as we begin, uh, it serves as more than just a date stamp that indicates when this account took place. But it is more than that. It is an indication of Israel's spirituality at the time. It's a theological description, we might say, of, of Israel's relationship with God at this time in the history of redemption. As we know, that in the days of the judges, when the judges ruled Israel, And, you know, when you think of Israel's judges, um, it's helpful to picture someone more like a military ruler than a judge that we might think about today that sits behind a bench and, you know, has a robe like I do, right? Um, Think more of a military ruler. Well, when we read about the judges in the Bible and the days of the judges, we know that Israel had entered the promised land, but the nation. Of Israel in those days lived in a cycle of sin and of disobedience to the Lord. During those days in Israel, we are we are told in the Book of Judges, chapter twenty-one, verse twenty-five, that everyone did as seemed best in his own eyes, for there was no king in the land. Throughout the Book of Judges, we see these periods of of repentance and restoration for the nation of Israel when God periodically would send one of the judges to deliver them from the hands of their enemies. But after each deliverance, Israel would just return to its old ways, to sin and disobedience, which then would bring again God's judgment and discipline upon the nation. And, you know, God warned Israel about the consequences of their sin and their disobedience. He warned Israel that if they, his people, disobeyed him, he would make the heavens like bronze and the earth under them would be like iron, and he would take away the rain from the land. You know, this is all explained in Deuteronomy chapter 28 these warnings that would that God would bring discipline upon his people and, you know, famine was a part of God's discipline of his wayward people in order to bring them to repentance. And so when we read Ruth chapter 1 verse 1, when we read that in the days of the judges, in the days when everyone did what was right in his own eyes, when we read that in those days there was a famine in the land, what we see is that God's word was coming to pass. And God was warning his people through this famine that they needed to repent and to return to him. And so within the nation of Israel, we see during this very spiritually uh, dark time, we are introduced to one of the Jewish families that lived in Israel and the difficult choice that this family had to make. We read in Ruth chapter 1, continuing in verse 1, that a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So we see that this family lived in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which means house of bread in Hebrew, but there was no bread in the city. This was supposed to be the land that was to be flowing with milk and honey, but again, because of Israel's disobedience and because of their covenant unfaithfulness, there was now only famine. So there was a choice before this family. The choice was that they could stay... In Bethlehem, they could stay and respond to God in repentance by turning from their sins and trusting that God would provide for them as he always did, that God would provide for them and for all of his people just as he had promised. They could do that. Or they could leave the promised land and they could go to Moab where there was food. Sadly, we see that Elimelech, Elimelech was one of those in Israel who did what was right in his own eyes. And we read that he moved his family to Moab where there was food. Now, loved ones, it's important for us to see that Elimelech's decision, his decision had spiritual consequences. See, it wasn't, it wasn't just a pragmatic Move It wasn't just that, hey, there's food in Moab, uh, so let's go to Moab. But for Elimelech, there was a spiritual element that he was neglecting in his decision, because in, in the old covenant, God had provided a land for his people to live in. It was the promised land, right? The land of Canaan. And in the Old Covenant, it was a holy land. It's the land where God's people were to live under God's rule and where God's people were to experience God's blessings. You know, the significance of this, you know, it can be hard for us to understand because in the New Covenant, you know, we're not tied to the promised land as Israel was in the Old Covenant. But, We need to understand that it was different for the church in the Old Covenant. They were given a land, a specific geological, geographical location. It was a land that God declared holy, a land where the tabernacle and then later the temple existed. See, it was a land where God promised to be with his people. So the question then comes in, where was Moab? Well. Well, Moab, loved ones, was outside of this promised land. And the Moabites were pagans that did not worship the one true God. They did not worship Yahweh. And they also did not like the people of God. They did not like Israel. You might recall from your Bible reading that it was the Moabites who refused to give Israel bread And water to help them out when Israel was wandering through the wilderness. And you might also recall from your Bible reading that it was Balak, uh, the king of Moab, uh, who told Balaam to curse Israel. And we know that that didn't work out as uh, Balak had hoped. So, as far as Israel was concerned, We need to understand that God did not want his people to have anything to do with the Moabites. See, they were idolaters who were opposed to Yahweh, who were opposed to the one true God. And so when we read in Ruth chapter 1 verse 2 that Elimelech took his wife and his two sons, into the country of Moab and remained there. You know, that's the Bible's way, loved ones, of raising red flags for us. Because Elimelech, instead of repenting again and and seeking God's mercy, we read that he left the place where God had promised to bless his people and he did what was right in his own eyes. You know, his decision, as we consider it this morning, his decision may have seemed like the smart choice at the time. Again, there was food in Moab. Moab. There was food there, and his family would not go hungry. But loved ones, we have to consider the spiritual cost that his decision uh, placed upon his family. We see it in verses 3 through 5. Uh, and fathers, you know, as we consider this this morning, I, I want to remind you that you are the spiritual leader of your family. We as fathers have been called by God to lead our families spiritually, and so we need to primarily, I want to underline this idea that we need to primarily be seeking what is spiritually beneficial for our families. Not just what is financially. Or practically. Beneficial. See our calling as fathers. Our primary calling. Is spiritual leadership. The other things are important. But this is the most important. According to the word of God. See fathers. If if we help our children. By only. Teaching them how to manage their money, by only teaching them how to excel in their studies and in their careers, and yet we neglect to lead our families spiritually, we have gained nothing. Fathers, we need to teach our children. We need to lead our families in such a way that they know that the only place where God's Blessings lie is found in Christ. To teach our families that outside of Christ there is no spiritual blessing to be found. We need to abide in Christ and to seek our life in Him and Him alone. See, Elimelech did the very opposite. Elimelech led his family away from the place where God's blessings were to be found. And we read that his family suffered spiritually as a result. This is, if you think about it, very similar to Lot's decision. Remember from your Bible reading that Lot had to separate at one point from Abraham. And Lot decided to move his family near the wicked city of Sodom because the land looked lush And it looked comfortable. Again, it was a pragmatic decision. It was a very practical decision. Even though Sodom was wicked, and the Bible clearly says that it was filled with people who were opposed to the Lord, Lot moved his family there. And we read that Lot became a property owner in Sodom, became a politician, he became a leader in the city, and his daughters even married Sodomite men's men. All of that led to spiritual disaster for Lot's family. If you read the account toward the beginning of toward the middle of the book of Genesis, right? This is a very similar situation here with Elimelech and his family. And so, fathers, we need to teach our children that there is only one place where God's blessings lie, and that is in Christ. That outside of Christ there are no spiritual blessings to be found. We need to abide in him, to seek our life in him and him alone. So we read in Ruth chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, that Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. We see that Elimelech's family stayed in Moab for 10 years and that over those years they were in danger, in constant danger of assimilating more and more, of becoming more and more like the Moabite culture and religion that surrounded them. And after Elimelech died, his sons intermarried with the Moabites. Something that, again, God strictly forbade Israel from doing. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, the warning was clear. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? Why did God issue this warning to Israel? for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. This is evident in King Solomon's own life, whose heart was turned away by his many foreign wives. This was the warning that went out. Do not intermarry with these unbelievers. So we see that the sons took Moabite wives, and within this 10-year period of time, Naomi's sons also died. Loved ones, can you imagine Naomi there standing at the gravesite of her second son? She's standing at a gravesite for the third time in ten years. And you can imagine that it wasn't just the loss of her husband and her two sons that was weighing so heavily upon her. But we need to understand that she was now in a very dangerous situation. She was now a widow with no husband and no sons to care for her. You know, in our, in our modern day, in 21st century America, we have all kinds of social safety nets and services to protect and to support the poor and the needy. You know, there wasn't any social security for Naomi in Moab. She was an Israelite. She had very few rights and privileges in Moab. And so in this very desperate situation, this very painful situation, where it seems like she has no hope, we see that God has provided hope for her through Ruth. As we consider our second point this morning, that we must believe that the cost of discipleship is worth it. We read verse 7, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. We see God's mercy on his people. God, again, provided bread for Bethlehem. He provided bread for the house of bread. And so Naomi, we read, decided to... Return to the promised land. And we see that it was on the road, it was on the road somewhere between Moab and Bethlehem, and that Naomi stopped and told her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, told them to return to their Moabite families. We begin reading at verse 7 through uh, verse 13. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. That the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. As we consider these verses, in many ways, we see Naomi's hurt in her attitude and in her words toward God. We see in her words that she blames God for her difficulties. And we see that as she is blaming God, she doesn't acknowledge her husband's responsibility And what has befallen her? She doesn't acknowledge the fact that they disobeyed God by moving their family to a place that God had warned them specifically to stay away from. We see in verse 13 the way she describes uh, her uh, difficulty. She says, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. We see also that when Naomi reached Bethlehem, she said to the women of the city, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, Mara which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity Upon me. Now, that phrase, the Lord has testified against me, Naomi is saying that the Lord has called her to account at the bar of his court, courtroom and he has passed judgment on her. Ian Duguid, who's a professor at Westminster in Philadelphia, he explains uh, this verse this way. He says, Naomi attributed her losses directly to the Almighty's acts of judgment against her. In response, her heart had grown hard and bitter toward God, both recognizing and at the same time resenting His power in her life. Do Good continues. He says, "At this point, there was not a whisper of acknowledgment in her heart of her or her husband's responsibility." in choosing the path of disobedience that led her away from the promised land in the first place. Naomi's body may have made the journey home, back to the promised land, but her spirit was still far from restored to the Lord. So, loved ones, when life is difficult and even when the difficulties are a direct result of our sin of disobeying God's warnings to us and following after our own wisdom you know we can be tempted to blame God to blame him and and to to make him out as being one who is harsh and vengeful toward us and the danger of that is first of all it's very bad theology but you know the danger of it is also that such an attitude can blind us, it can blind us to the blessings that God has for us even in the midst of difficulty and trial, that he is always working for our good and for his glory. Because loved ones, think about it, as we look at this passage this morning, God was using this trial in Naomi's life to draw Naomi Back to himself. He was drawing Naomi back to himself. Think about it with me. If Naomi had stayed in Moab, if, he, if she had stayed there with her family and lived a comfortable life, if she and Elimelech had lived to a ripe old age, and her sons and her daughters in law had children, in Moab and then her grandchildren grew up in Moab and became good Moabite doctors and Moabite lawyers, you know comfortable pagans in a pagan land. Naomi might have been happier, but she would have gained the world at the cost of her soul. The loved ones we see instead that God the Lord God in his infinite wisdom, and in his abounding graciousness, God was using this very difficult trial in her life to draw her back to himself. We might say that he emptied Naomi of her physical comforts in order to fill her spiritually. And not just, loved ones, not just to draw Naomi to himself, but also Ruth. Because we see that In these verses, it is God, through these trials, that drew not only Naomi back to himself, but he also saved Ruth by his sovereign grace. Remember, Ruth was a Moabite. And she also experienced tragedy in her life. Ruth lost her husband. She herself, at this point, was Grieving, she herself had every reason to be bitter, like Naomi. But instead, we see how God was softening her heart by his Holy Spirit, and he was granting Ruth, at this very moment, salvation by his sovereign grace. We read beginning in verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah Kissed her mother in law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister in law has gone back to her people and to her gods. It's a very important phrase. Return after your sister in law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord, and notice that here she used the covenant name of God. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Loved ones, as we consider what is taking place here. Conventional wisdom, we might say, humanly speaking. The smart thing for Ruth to have done would have been to return to Moab with Orpah. Think about their life situation at the, that, that moment. They were both young, young enough to find Moabite husbands, again, to have Moabite families. It would have been an easy choice for Ruth to make, to go back with Orpah, even if it meant going back to a place that was opposed to Yahweh. But we read instead that Ruth clung to Naomi, and more importantly, that she clung to Yahweh. Ruth said to Naomi, Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This is evidence of her true conversion, because for Ruth, To make this decision, it meant that she knew that she would be facing intense difficulty as a result of this decision. She, in essence, knew what she was signing up for. She knew that going with Naomi to the promised land meant denying herself and following after God. And she put her faith in God. And the spiritual blessings that resulted from the decision, as we will see in the coming weeks, those spiritual blessings far outweighed any material comforts, loved ones, that she would have found in Moab. Ruth here counted the cost of discipleship, and by God's sovereign grace chose, we might say, the road less traveled, the narrow road. She chose the one true God. And as disciples of Christ, we are called to make the same decision. To say no to the sinful things, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, as are listed in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. To say no to these things and to say yes to Christ. And loved ones, while it may seem like we are missing out on the pleasures and the comforts of Moab. We are gaining so much more because we are following after Christ. The Lord Jesus himself assures us that everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. It's Matthew chapter 19, verse 25. We need to believe, loved ones, that the cost of discipleship is worth it. It's worth it because the Bible says that it is. That the blessings and the benefits that we gain by faith in Christ and in following after him far outweigh, they do not compare to the fading sinful pleasures of this life. So we see that you and I are to stay where God has promised life and hope We are secondly to believe that the cost of discipleship is worth it. And thirdly, that we are to trust in God's gracious and sovereign purposes for our lives. We read beginning at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. where Naomi says in verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Again, we feel her sadness, do we not? She has lost her husband. She has lost her two sons. She is grieving. But don't you also feel some sadness that she doesn't take notice of Ruth, who is worth her? We see that Ruth at this point is not high on Naomi's list of blessings from the Lord. You can imagine Naomi introducing Ruth to the other women of Bethlehem and saying, this is Ruth, my daughter-in-law, she's a Moabite. She's a Moabite. In fact, as you uh, look at verse uh, 22, you'll see that Ruth is described as a Moabite from Moab twice, just to underline the fact that she is a Gentile from a sinful nation. And here is Naomi saying, I, have gone, I went away full, and I have come back empty. Loved ones, see, we notice in this text Naomi's short-sightedness. Again, the loss we need to understand she has experienced was traumatic, and the danger she faced as a result of being a widow in this harsh world was perhaps overwhelming to her, but she was spiritually short-sighted none. The less. And the Bible shows us this about Naomi, not so that we might uh, beat up on Naomi, but again, the Bible shows us this to help us understand God's ways so that we might trust in His gracious and sovereign purposes for our lives. Because even as Naomi and her family experienced suffering and loss, we need to see. God was working providentially to bless them and to accomplish redemption through his promised Messiah. Remember at the beginning of the sermon I read from Romans chapter 15 verse 4 where the Apostle Paul says that the Old Testament scriptures were written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And so that as we read Ruth and Job, and all the stories of the Old Testament, you and I, we can draw application to our own lives by by noticing God's pattern of goodness and his faithfulness to his people throughout the ages. Sinclair Ferguson wrote in explaining this and says, as Christians in the New Testament era, we know even more than the author of the book of Ruth about what God was planning and working out through the lives of its central characters. In this way, says Ferguson, you know, God is saying to us, to you and to me, do you see how I planted my footsteps in the sea, in the lives of these my children in the past days? Let me show you how I did that. This is the kind of God that I am. This is the kind of thing that I do. And Ferguson goes on to say, and this is precisely what you can expect me to do in your lives too. Trust me. I know exactly what I am doing. See, loved ones, as we learn from God's word, we learn about his ways, and learning these things becomes spiritually profitable to us. We can trust God, even in the most Difficult times in life because he is always working all things for his glory and for our good. Even sometimes, though we are short sighted like Naomi, his work, his will is always taking place in our lives. We can believe him, we can trust him. Why? Supremely, supremely because of his gracious track record that culminated in the cross of Christ. We can say with the Apostle Paul, can we not this morning, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Loved ones, God has revealed his goodness and his faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. And though we do not know what the future holds, we know who holds the future. And so we trust, we trust that he loves us and is working all things for his glory and for our good. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness throughout all generations. We thank you for the way that you planned salvation, you planned our redemption and accomplished it through the cross of Christ. We pray that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear that even as we go through the difficulties of this life and the hard providences that you have ordained for us, you might grant us patience, you might grant us spiritual insight, you might grant us steadfastness, O Lord, that we might always cling to Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.